Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. My conversation with Nick Passarelli today was fun and fluid. Nick has a lot of energy, his passion is contagious, and he's professional and as personal as they come. He's just a tough guy not to like. It's clear that he's on top of his game and just gets it. Nick's ascension through corporate America, specifically in compliance on Wall Street's no accident. It took a plan and a lot of hard work, and I don't just mean grinding it out in the office for hours. Nick isn't afraid of getting his hands dirty, at the same time knows how to work smart. During our talk, you'll get the opportunity to learn about how important Nick's skill for building great relationships have served him, as well as how he thinks about relationships and the importance they play, not just in business, but life in general. After all, networking is a skill set that anyone can learn, but not everyone has the desire and fortitude to take that extra time to build these relationships. Nick is living proof how doing those little extras can go a long way. I mean, you don't get into all the different leadership roles that he's held without strong social skills. Nick offers many nuggets of wisdom, including some of the tips and tricks on what he has done to get to the top, from how he builds rapport, some of his daily routines, and how staying mentally and physically fit are paramount to him. So without further ado, turn up the volume and enjoy being a fly on the wall during my conversation with Nick Passarelli. I'm really happy and appreciate that you're carving out some time to spend with me today. We're going to have some fun. Yep. Again, we're going to talk about uh, who you are. <laughs> we're going to talk about your background. We're going to talk about what you do, how you do it, and the, the evolution of your career. And obviously, we're going to talk about what a network means to you, the value of a network, stories that you have about like relationships and how you've built them and what they mean to you. Sure. So, uh, so I'm excited to have you here, Nick Passarelli, my good friend, my neighbor, the coach of my daughter, uh, <laughs> just uh, the head of the uh, golf outing at our school. The man is, is good people. He understands relationships. He understands success. And he is a leader. Uh, Nick would love to uh, educate everybody that's listening. Tell them about who you are. Tell them about your background. Tell them about what you do. So originally from Long Island, which is a sore point, you know, especially moving to New Jersey. You know, the, the thought of Long Islanders having to cross two rivers to come and see me just, just doesn't work. Born and raised on Long Island, moved into uh, Brooklyn when I was 22. So I went to undergrad at St. John's, um, got a degree in psychology, then pursued my MBA in something called industrial and organizational psych. Not to bore you with all the details, but essentially it talks about psychology in the workplace, more focused on human resources. My first job was at Price Waterhouse. I worked there in their HR department for four years. Then I moved on to Prudential Securities, which is no longer around, but I was there for a year and a half. Uh, after 9-11, I was tapped on the shoulder as a part of company-wide layoffs. But you know, as opposed to looking at it as, oh my goodness, what am I going to do next? I, it was a real opportunity for me to kind of rebrand myself and, and rebuild. And, and it was really my first foray with resiliency. Um, being out of work and really having to tap into my network and having to really dig deep in terms of that next opportunity, which finally came in January 2003. I had a consulting opportunity with my previous firm at Kellogg Group, um, eventually became their director of HR, which became a role in compliance, which became a chief compliance officer role for one of the divisions in 2005. 
did that for about four and a half years. And now I'm with my current firm, DealerWeb, since March of 2009. Well, you had a, a quick ascension to being a chief compliance officer. That's something that typically takes a, a lot longer and is held by people that have different experience. How, how did that come to be? So it's funny you mention it. What happened was there was a combination of a need for the role and my interest in it. So I had a very good working relationship with the person who ran our institutional sales desk. And I had said to him, you know, I've been working in compliance for the past year and a half, even though my background is HR, I would really like to see if this is something that could transpire into a full-time role. I presented it to him. He immediately said, yes, you'll need to get your series seven, your series 14, and your series 24, which are regulatory licenses uh, that the industry required. So in a matter of five weeks, I was able to obtain all of them. I really locked myself in my room and my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was incredibly patient with me, but it happened. And in January 2015, I was named in that spot. And for me, you know, one of the things about that role, it really was baptism by fire. I took, you know, my work experience, brought it into a compliance type of environment. And, and really, you learn a lot on the job. And that's the one thing, you know, you can't replace is experience. And, uh, you know, for me, being in that particular role in that firm and given that opportunity was invaluable. And it helped build to where I am today. Let's first talk about those licenses Yeah, because uh, in the series seven I had taken and I studied for longer than five weeks <laughs> and I had locked myself in and I failed by one question. Oh my God. Yeah, it was brutal. Right. The second time I took it, I got like an 88 and I was more upset with the 88 of course than I was when, you know, cause <laughs> I overstudied. So how the heck did you without an experience? Cause you didn't have product experience, no, right? I you didn't have, didn't like, have like, product experience. Yeah. What I did was I paid for a class at securities training corp. I took a lot of practice exams. That's really, you know, at least back then, and I think it's still the case today, repetition. And I was able to see a number of these questions verbatim. That was the first hurdle. Getting the principal license, the Series 24, that to me was the challenge. I actually hired a tutor, someone at securities training who I still talk to today, who was very helpful. And, and really, I was focused on just passing these exams and then finally, the Series 14, which was the NYSE's sadistic version of the 24, okay. was able to do that. And then the funny story behind that is I took that once, three months prior, failed it. Took it the night or the morning after my company Christmas party. So I wasn't in the best shape, but it actually was good because I went in. I wasn't as nervous. I was tired. And I just said, you know what? It is what it is. If it happens, great. If it doesn't happen, I have another shot. And I passed. So wow. we'll never have to do that again. Kudos to you, but isn't it like the bar where you've got CLE? Is there any? Uh, no, no, nothing like that. So I'm not an attorney. Uh, my wife is. I'm not an attorney. So the only thing that I'm required to do is take continuing education through FINRA every three years. Gotcha. That's it. Okay, yeah. great. What was the draw to compliance? Did you have a foreshadowing of what was coming down the pike? Or yes. Was it I viewed compliance a lot like HR back in the early to mid 90s. It was something that People were just kind of falling into, it was a need at a lot of these financial firms, but it wasn't something that people were coming out of school with and saying, okay, I want to work in compliance. It just happened to be one of those support roles that became more and more important as regulation continued to evolve. So for me, when I started at Kellogg, I said, wow, I can see there being a real need for compliance as the markets continue to evolve with technology, there's going to be more of a demand for these people in-house. So I shifted away from HR and into that role. 
And it's been something that, that's been fantastic. I've been doing compliance for the better part of 15 years now, and I have no regrets. It, it was a great move. Yeah. All right. There's so much demand for it now. We'd actually just had a conversation last week with a gentleman by the name of Frank Napolitani. Mm-hmm. Frank, if you're listening, I apologize if I didn't get your name right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and Frank works for uh, Eisner Antner. Right. And I'm sure you're familiar with who they are. Definitely. And, uh, you obviously, you know, he, he touched upon, didn't touch upon, he actually focused on a lot in terms of the, the needs and the demand for compliance and how important it is. And it's, it's not going anywhere. No, absolutely. Whereas uh, a lot of the other jobs these days, especially on Wall Street, are, are going the way of the dodo, not compliance. Exactly. Compliance, though, even myself. So I, I used to trade. I was on the sitting in a quote-unquote front office role and, and been in other capacities. And a lot of times the guys in compliance get a bad rap. It's a really tough, you're in a tough spot. You're looking out in the, the best interests of the company. You have a fiduciary capacity. How do you establish the relationships with these guys and kind of touch upon what that hurdle might be or if it is a hurdle and if so, what you're doing to, to earn their trust? So I think the first thing which is crucial is to establish that you're working with them and not against them. That the regulators, whoever they may be, FINRA, the SEC, the National Futures Association, whomever, have responsibility and oversight on your firm. Your job is to make sure that these people are following these rules, as well as any internal policies and procedures that you need to set forth. So the first thing is that you're a business partner. They need to understand that you are a business partner. Come to me with any issues, be proactive, don't wait, and I'm dealing actually with something right now, you know, to that point, don't wait for something to blow up and then come to me later and expect me to clean it up, which I'll have to anyway, but it's better to work proactively. So I have an open door policy. People can come into my office anytime. They know how to reach me. I'm available through Bloomberg, email, cell phone, whatever the case may be. And I want people to just be proactive, which I think I've done not only in my current firm, but in my previous firm where people were very comfortable talking to me because you want them to focus what they have to focus on, whether it's trading or operations or whatever, and not have to worry about this stuff. And the more communication they have with me and the more that they can discuss these issues before they happen, everybody. And then separately, having a proactive relationship with the contacts at these regulatory agencies for me has been so important because Having them understand what our business is, what we do, what are the types of products that we engage in, so that when they come in for exams or they send inquiries and whatever, we can proactively work and say, no, we don't do investment banking, we don't do research, but here's what we are you know, involved with. And the more that I can speak with these people, having them understand what we do, the better it is for everybody in terms of Tell me about those relationships. Who are the people? Is it a challenge to establish these relationships? Do they appreciate your proactivity? I'm sure it's some of both. So I have relationships with with very senior people at these regulators, and I can say this. They're very appreciative of it. They are people just like us who have a role and have responsibilities within that role. But unfortunately, a lot of times it's the perception which is greater than the reality, and people tend to make blanket assumptions about who they are and what they do. Some firms tend to be a little bit shy in terms of making contact. They wait to be contacted by them. Whereas I can pick up the phone with a dozen plus contacts and bounce off a question or bounce off an idea. And they're appreciative of it. 
Conversely, they come to me and they say, hey, you know, this is what we're looking into, a new program. Can you give me your thoughts? Can you discuss it internally? So having that collaborative relationship has been so important because of the fact that, you know, we have nothing to hide, right? This is who we are. This is what we do. And at the same time, when they come in and have to do what work they have to do, they understand what to focus on and what not to focus on. And it's just better for everybody. Yeah. Walk me through how you get to know these people guarded. Are they, how do you maintain that relationship? And what does, tell me about the value of having somewhat of a warm relationship. doesn't have to be your buddy, but the difference between having some kind of relationship versus if you were more of a stoic, you know, stern here, just come in and do your job type guy. Exactly. So we have assigned coordinators from the different regulatory agencies, FINRA being our main regulator. And you start with a coordinator and then you work your way into different areas. For example, I'll just throw out one area. There's an area called transparency services that really looks to focus on the amount of transparency that firms are sending, you know, to FINRA with trade reports and so on and so forth. I have a very good working relationship with the person who runs transparency services and being able to, you know, continue throughout my career and meeting more people and having them understand, okay, this is what I do. And can you explain a little further on what you do? Whether it's reading regulatory notices and reaching out to contacts, I've always found these people most times than not to be very helpful and very pleasant when you explain what it is you know, you're looking for and what information you're looking to obtain. I've always found them more times than not to be you know, extremely helpful with what you want to do. That's great. And in terms of just the relationship side, though, how do you do it? You're one of the better networkers out there. Um, I just know even from town. You know, a lot of people who well me, oh, you know, you, you know, Nick, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, that, so what do you do to be out there? You know, when it's not your job necessarily to build a network and you're in a a position that typically is not necessarily known for having a deep network, what do you do? How do you do it? Well, I think the first thing, whether it's internal or reaching out external is having them understand that you're a person like them and not an entity. I think that's part of the challenge that some of these roles in compliance and legal face is that oh, we have to talk to the compliance person or we have to talk to the lawyer. And it's that fear of, you know, they're going to be very cold and very, you know, stoic and they're not going to understand what we do and they're not going to be able to empathize with our situation. And and for me, one of the things that I like to do is I'm all about, you know, kind of the who you know and what do we have in common type of thing. Even if it's as simple as, you know, having someone come into your office and, you know, how was your weekend? And, oh, where do you live? Oh, you're from Long Island. I'm from Long Island too. Where do you live? And establishing that rapport puts people at ease. And and I do the same thing to not as much of the extent as I do internally, but for the same thing, reaching out to external clients, especially with regulators. You know, for example, I have one very good regulatory contact that lives in the city and he has a son who's around my daughter's age. And is he off from school this week? And what are you guys doing on vacation? And having that relationship first and being able to not just focus on the work at hand, but recognizing him as a valued friend and contact. And we all play different roles in life, right? And this is one of the roles, chief compliance officer, but I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm, you know, a son. There are a lot of different roles that you play in life and making that connection with people puts them at ease. 
Yeah, that's such a great answer. And it just reminds me, there's actually an article that I've written that will be coming out in a couple of weeks or maybe months. We'll see whenever we decide mm-hmm. to post it that we titled nothing. Uh, there's nothing small about small talk. Right. I love the quote. I love everything that, that it entails. And you're spoken like a true networking guru over there. <laughs> you know, there's a thing called Dunbar's Law where essentially you're, you know, most people can't establish meaningful relationships with more than 150 people. Right. And 150 people, that entails, you know, like your family, your friends, people you've grown up with. So as you start working your way out towards those 150 people, especially when you start talking about work, tough to remember these people. Do you use a contact management system or what do you do to... LinkedIn, very important. But I do have, you know, the one thing I'll say about myself is that I do have a pretty good memory when it comes to certain things. Now, you know, I may not remember what I had for breakfast yesterday or, you know, may not remember certain details like that, but I'll meet someone. And just as an example, I ran into a woman the other day that I used to work with and I asked her, I, I said, how is your son doing at so-and-so school? And she said, I can't believe you remember that. And I said, but I remember you used to talk about it all the time. And she says, you have a great memory. It's little things like that where you can establish and say, hey, how is your husband doing here? Or how did your son do You know, in that soccer tournament? People tend to appreciate the fact that you listen to them and that you remember certain details. And right away, it, it puts them at ease in speaking with you and, and makes them more comfortable in terms of, absolutely, this is someone who truly listens and someone who genuinely cares. If, if they didn't care, they wouldn't ask me about my family. They wouldn't ask me about you know, how I did on that test or how I did or how that vacation was. That's the thing for me, being able to establish, one, something in common that you might have with them, or two, picking up something that's important to them and talking more about it. You know, like, you know me, Adam, I'm an avid runner, right? Any opportunity that I have to speak about running, I'll do it. So if I go into someone's office and I see a picture of them crossing the marathon, at the finish line at a marathon, I'll say, hey, was that the Houston Marathon? Well, let's say, yeah, how would you know? And then you talk about it and it certainly helps to establish that rapport and the continuing relationship. Speaking of that, actually, gentleman that we had here last week, Name's Tom Harden. You might have heard of him as Tipper X. Yes. Um, someone that I need to introduce you to. He now has a business where he's going around. He's traveling around the, the world and he's talking about his experience from an insider trading standpoint. Okay. Um, he is an avid runner. He just did a, what was it, an ultra. He ran a hundred miles. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He oh, attempted it. Yeah, his story is his story's crazy. Oh. Yeah. You, know, you should listen to him. He's a fascinating guy but and a good guy to, to talk to in general. And he's, you know, I don't know how well networked you are with other CCOs, but those are, those are the people that he knows. And actually, let's go to that for a second. Do you do anything within your CCO community? Do you guys have get togethers? Do you do, what do you guys do to share ideas, hear about what's going on? Or are you guys strictly, or your relationships just with the regulators? Terrific question. And the answer is this, I am a part of a mid-market regulatory working group. We meet four times a year every quarter and it's mid-sized firms like mine and we talk about all the different issues in fact the person who runs the group gets guest speakers from finra and from other areas and we discuss relevant topics topics that are important to us topics that we are all facing and we bounce ideas off of one another uh, so yes i am a part of one group i do attend a lot of the sifma 
compliance and legal lunch with CNL. In fact, I'm going to one next Wednesday. Robert Cook from FINRA, the CEO, is going to be speaking. So it's a good opportunity to you know talk about some issues with him directly. But also, I speak with a number of different contacts um, at my clients every single day. They know how to reach me. They know what's important to them. They can talk to me about their issues. So every day, whether it's through work, through networking, or through these different events, I do keep in touch with a number of people in the industry. You know, you've already mentioned a lot of different groups. But what, what most people don't realize is that we're all sitting within a, a tremendous amount of networks, whether right. we realize it or not. So just in the course of this quick conversation we talked about already, we talked about schools. That's like one network, you know, within the people that you have. Um, not only are you've got your own schools, you've got your alumni, you also have our kids' schools. That's one. You just talked about work. That's another group. The, a networking group. We talked about the regulator world, which I guess still falls into the work group, but but sure. there's also vendors and things of that nature running huge. Yeah. It's a huge network. I mean, it's a that's a lot of different groups and it's a lot of balls to juggle. But you seem to be doing a really good job of doing that, uh, more so than probably ninety nine percent of the people that are out there. And that that takes a lot of work. How much energy? And I know you're conscious of it, but how much energy does that take? And and how important is that to you? It's very important, and it does take a lot of. My day starts really early. I mean, you know, most days I'm up at 4.45, whether it's going for a run or going to the gym. My day starts early because I know the second that I get home, my kids are up, we have to get to school, and the rat race begins. So really, it's important for me to, one, get the things done that, from a personal perspective, I need to help get through the day. And, and exercise is a big part of that. My wife's very much into that as well, whether it's through local bar or elliptical or running. We are both very physically active because it helps set the tone for the rest of the day. And, you know, different people have different ways to cope with stress. Physical activity is mine. But also, too, it's important for me, you know, outside of work to continue those relationships that I value. So I run with literally a half a dozen different people. I can run with one guy, you know, one day and then another person another day and another person another day, depending on their schedule, depending on my schedule. And it's great because, you know, it gives you an opportunity to catch up, talk about your families, talk about work, talk about, and it makes the run go quick too, which is the other key point. (laughs) Um, You know, if you're running six miles and, you know, it's 10 degrees out there and you're by yourself, man, it's a long time. But if you're with someone and they're struggling with you, you know, there's power in numbers as always. Um, But also too, even last night, we had our first, um, meeting for the golf event that we host in Hoboken. And it was great to see the people that I haven't seen in months and to talk about, you know, not just planning the event, talk about what they've been doing for the holidays and what they have going on for spring break. So it's important to continue these relationships because the one thing, you know, it's people who can excel in these types of situations that are able to continue from a resiliency standpoint, because, because once, and and here's what I found out when I I lost my job back in 2001, you figure out real fast, which contacts you have based on your role and which contacts you have based on you. And that to me was a lesson that a lot of people learn myself included the hard way, because when you're not working and you're not in that role and some of those people that you talk to all the time, don't return your calls or don't return your emails. It's not only disappointing, but it's a great lesson because now you can sit there and say, okay, it looks like I can't rely on this person. But at the end of the day, it also makes you more 
you know, focused on yourself and more resilient to say, you know what, I'm going to continue on. I'm going to focus on the, the relationships that I do have and the people that will help me. And you move on from that. You couldn't have segued any better to what the question I was just going to ask you. So that was really fortuitous. In that vein, what are the qualities that you look for in reciprocating relationships? So for me, someone who understands one, what I do, right? Because a lot of times people will reach out to you and say, oh, you're the chief compliance officer, but it's in an area that's not focused in what I'm doing. Now, I don't dismiss that person. I say, look, you know, I can certainly refer you to someone over here, but we should keep in touch if there happens to be any crossover. For me, some of the other things, it's just having people understand one, you know, what your role is, but also two, they need to know what it is that, you know, you can provide and bring to the table. But having that, that understanding that at the end of the day, you know, hey, even if we don't have an opportunity to do business right now, there could be opportunities down the road. Let's keep in touch. Let's talk about what you're working on. Let's talk about, you know, some of the things where there could be some connectivity down the road. I think a lot of times people tend to be dismissive if there isn't a great fit right away. It's like, oh, you know, that's not the kind of compliance you do. Well, whatever. Sorry about that. It's like, hold on a second, you know, and the people that that I've been, you know, speaking with for the longest time, their roles have evolved over the years, just like I have. But we've always been able to find that common link that, hey, you've gone from HR to compliance. Is there something that I can assist with? Or do you have a need in this? So, so really, it, it's just getting to know the person, getting them to understand what it is you do, but also continuing that relationship if you both value to do that. And, and hopefully, you know, there is something down the road where you, there, there might be some common. Yeah, so it's not as transactional. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We're kind of like uh, uh, the hit it and quit it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no exactly. Hit and quit it. Yeah, it's a, um, I guess similar metaphorically to to what you do in your spare time. Relationships are a marathon, it's not a sprint. Exactly. Good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want everybody to get an opportunity to get to know you on a more personal level. I've got a, a section that uh, that we do. It's called uh, my rapid fire section. Let's hear some quick questions. Love it. Yeah. Short answers just to give people a better understanding of you at a more personal level. Right. Ready to rock and roll? Let's do it. Talk to me. Introvert, extrovert, centrovert. Extrovert all the way. All the way. All the way. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. You're owning that. Yes. <laughs> you talked about getting up early in the morning. But what time do you go to bed? Or maybe I should just say how many hours of sleep are you typically getting a night? So ideally, I would be getting six to seven hours of sleep. But I think it's usually in the six to six and a half hour. I'm going to call challenge because you respond on, on texts or emails at all times. So, <laughs> yeah, so the fact that you're saying six or seven, I'm going to say challenge. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, I think I probably know the answer to this one already just because your response time. But uh where, where's your cell phone when you go to bed at night? Next to my bed, which is probably not the best place for it, because the first thing instinctually you do when you wake up is to go for your phone. You want to see if you've missed anything. Yeah. And, you know, not good at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., but, you know, what I'm trying to be better at when it's time to relax and it's family time, putting the phone aside. That, that's been one of the challenges that I faced. That's so hard. I uh, actually just about a month or two ago started doing the same thing. It's hard in the beginning, but then it's like, uh, it's relief. No, absolutely. And, and plus, you know, your, your kids, especially your older ones, pick up on it quickly. Like when they're asking you a question and you're on your phone, like, daddy, you know, I'm talking to you. And and it's a very humbling moment to say, you're right. That's more important than this. So yeah. you put the yeah. phone down. Yeah, good point. What do you do? Well, we know what you do in 
terms of uh, physically to stay in shape, but what do you do mentally? Is there anything, is running kind of one and the same, or is there anything in particular that you do to, to stay sharp mentally? Physical activity is a big part of it. However, other things, you know, like reading. I said this, you know, I posted a blog on, um, on LinkedIn maybe about a month ago, reading more books, right? Anyone can look at a blog online. Anyone can read a magazine, right? But reading a book and getting involved in whatever the material is, it really challenges you and it's very stimulating. It's something that I find incredibly relaxing. My wife, you know, reads a lot of books. In fact, I, you know, for Christmas, I got her a subscription to the book of the month club, which she loves. And I'm starting to do more of that as well. So for me, a lot more reading of books and going into the topics that, you know, you don't typically see every day, whether it be, um, you know, history, like I'm a big history buff. That's the type of stuff that that I really enjoy doing. Nice. What, uh, what are you reading these days? The TB12, the Tom Brady method. You know, I, I've gotten about halfway through it. A lot self-promotion, I think, uh, but there is some, you know, good stuff in there that you can incorporate into your, you know, into your workout regimen, but it tends to be, at least in my opinion, a little bit more on the self-promotion. Yeah. Sense. What are any, give me a takeaway or two. He's big in pliability. He's big into, you know, a lot of resistance bands, whereas you and I, when we go to the gym, we're lifting weights and we're doing kettlebells and all that other stuff, but he's more in, in, into, you know, resistance bands. Having that pliability, that flexibility, for him, he believes it's helped prolong his career. Well, that's what uh, Jake, I think it's Jake Arrieta, the pitcher that's for, right. for the, the Cubs. Cubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, I mean, yeah, he's the same thing. He had like a complete resurgence and he owes it all to, uh, I forget what it's called, the exercise starts with the peep. I, I think it's the same thing. Right, right, okay. Gotcha. So is, are those the type of books that you typically read? Well, th- this one in particular, I was just fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the other ones, you know, like I said, I, I've read some fiction and even reading some old books that you haven't read in a while, whether it be like George Orwell's 1984 of Mice and Men, you know, stuff that you had to read in school, but it's like, you know what? This wasn't a bad book. Let me pick it up again and, yeah. you know, kind of see like, like the 1984 thing is interesting. You know, kind of, it, it kind of ties into, you know, what, what we're seeing a little bit from a political perspective these days. And, 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 you know, it's just good to get that history, especially the guy wrote it in the fifties. And it's like, man, the foresight and the vision that he had of what, he saw certain things happening, you know, down the road. I, I just fascinated by it. Yeah, I'm I'm reading uh, something pretty interesting. I just started it, but but I actually listened to a podcast with him. But uh, Chris Voss, he's a famous uh, the FBI's CIA's uh, hostage negotiator. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's called Never Split the Difference. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm early into it, but it's excellent. Yeah, I, I, it's, I, I would encourage almost anybody to read it okay. because it's not only just a fun read, but you want to talk about good. Good for your relationship with your wife Absolutely. or your significant other, and also uh, with with parenting. You'd be surprised. So for whatever that's worth. Good to know. Thank yeah. You. So tell me a habit you have: good, bad, or indifferent. Bad habit: having to get off my phone more. No question about it. I, I I feel like a lot of people. You're constantly looking at your phone. Your phone's buzzing, and it's that having to look at your phone immediately because you feel that if you don't, you're going to be out of the loop on something. Just really having an understanding that you know what, if you don't respond to your email within five minutes or that text within three minutes, it's not the end of the world. You're busy. You have other things that you need to do. There are things that you need to prioritize, you know, whether it's projects, more importantly, time with your family and your friends. That's the type of thing that I'm making more of a concerted effort to do is to not be so phone dependent. 
And I think, you know, so many people struggle with this. Oh, teach me the way. Man. <laughs> teach me the way. <laughs> back, to, uh, back to work for a second. Okay. Um, talk to me about what advice would you give those who are just kind of starting their careers? Great question. I would say pursue something that you enjoy and not something for the size of the paycheck. That, to me, I believe is the best advice that I could give. Because I think, you know, what happens is this. When I started in my career, I started at Price Waterhouse back in 1996. And, you know, I needed a job. And it was like, well, I don't really know anything about human resources, but it's a good company and so on and so forth. And then what happens is you progress in your career. You meet someone. You have kids. And now all of a sudden, you know, you're 20 plus years in. And it's like, okay, I've got a mortgage and I've got all these obligations. Really pursue something based on what you'll enjoy doing. You can always change, but once you get started, especially if it's a job that you don't like, people tend to stay in these jobs for the wrong reasons. And you know, the, the money's too good, or this is, you know, I really like this. But if it's not what you enjoy from a work perspective and you come home miserable and you get up dreading to go to work, then you know you've already failed. I can't begin to tell you how often I've heard that. So uh, recruiting all these years in Wall Street can't begin to tell you how many people pursued certain degrees because they felt they needed to or there's an influence from parents or because you know what happens is a lot of times people got into jobs again as maybe the downfall of networking but yeah but a lot of times uh especially in wall street people get jobs because hey their fathers were traders or they did something and they got them onto wall street and you know what they're, they're relatively smart they got hooked up with a pretty good job the bar really wasn't that high at the time and they ascended just through rising tides and what happened is, especially when the recession happened, a lot of people lost their jobs. And, and to no fault of their own, but they just lost their jobs. Maybe they weren't the best at what they did, but this kind of ties back to what you were saying because it was just a job to them. It wasn't a career. So they didn't really, uh, there, there wasn't the passion. They didn't really thrive to, to do better. They just did what they had to do to do well. And it doesn't, it's not a knock against them, but then they had an epiphany. They got fired. They didn't like it. They didn't. They didn't spend that time to build the network in their area because they just didn't. You know, they just didn't care. And there are people that I have talked to still today, from going back to two thousand and eight, that either haven't gotten work or they're not working in the field to their desire, and uh, they're not happy people. And and their lives have been turned upside down. They've had to sell homes. Some have lost homes. And so, so your advice is is well taken, and uh, uh, an effect that happens because of that. So I think that's a, that's great advice, Nick. Anything in terms of is there a certain attribute that you believe more people need? Resiliency. Resiliency all the way. Just to your point, you're mentioning people who, let's just use Wall Street, for example, right? Technology has eliminated a number of different jobs. And the technology that's come out in terms of trading and so on and so forth, certain roles have evolved past others. So when you're doing something that might be no longer needed or is considered outdated, what do you do to continue on if you want to stay within that industry? More times than not, you see people go the route of the dinosaur. And the lack of resiliency combined with a general sense of apathy. And where I saw this was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where a lot of brokers who saw the electronic handhelds coming in, I think it was back in 2006, many of them threw up their hands and said, it's over, it's done, it's this, it's that. But I know 
a handful of brokers these days who continued on in their careers and said to me, look, I'm not going to make the kind of money that I used to. I'll have to work twice as hard, probably make half of what I did. But you know what? I can continue to earn a good living. That's the difference. It's taking what you have and what skill set you have and your relationships that you have and transferring that into a different role. And more times than not, people don't seem to have that ability to understand, one, what they bring to the table, and two, that it can be used elsewhere and continue to be productive. I think more people tend to associate with their role and not with themselves. And it's Great a huge, it. huge problem. Great way of putting it. Yeah. What's keeping you up at night these days? For me, you know, the ever-changing regulatory landscape, but it's something I've been dealing with for the past 15 years. It's having the regulators understand, you know, as business gets tougher, as more regulation continues. And I had someone ask me this other question. They said, you know, it's got to be good with Trump, right? He's like throwing out all these regulations. And I said, well, to be honest, I've never been busier over the past few years because one, it takes months, if not years to unwind regulation. It doesn't happen overnight. And two, there's a lot of pressure on the regulatory agencies, the ones that are existing to do more from a regulatory standpoint and from an oversight standpoint. So for me, as my businesses continue to get involved in different areas, especially newer areas, that's the challenge, right? Anything that's outside of the box, typically for a regulator, tends to cause them some distress because a lot of times when you look at a regulatory landscape, you know, it usually fits within their comfort zone. When you start getting outside of that comfort zone, you know, if there's certain nuances to existing businesses, they say, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. What is this? You have to walk them through it. And a lot of times people, whether it's on either side, don't want to be the pioneer, right? When you're the pioneer, there comes a lot of questions, a lot of, well, if, if this is so easy, then why didn't people do it earlier? And there's like, we, we started a business five years ago that was brand new. I shouldn't say brand new, but we implemented it onto our ATS on the electronic side. It's been great. It's, it's high market efficiency, it's high transparency, but it was never done electronically. So of course it raised a ton of questions. Questions five years that I'm still answering, but that's to be expected. And, and that's something for me is just having people understand what it is we do as the businesses continue to evolve. Wow. And is there any trend in particular that you're seeing from an evolutionary standpoint right now? Sure. Um, more diligence from clients to their vendors. That's the number one thing. We receive more inquiries and more questionnaires from our clients because their regulators are putting more pressure on them. So we offer you know, more risk controls. We offer more things that help them with their compliance efforts because it's something that they require through their regulators. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. In terms of uh, advice for your future self, or I should say, now that you're in the future, <laughs> in the present, what advice would you have given to your yourself going back years, 20 years or so? It's a great question. For me, again, it would have been to follow your passion, right? The, the, the Nick of 2018, had he looked back, would have been doing something in sports. I'm a sports junkie. You know, I, I do a lot of stuff when it comes to like fantasy football or so on and so forth, you know, it's a great outlet for me. It's a great way to keep in touch with a lot of my buddies back at home. But you know, it's funny how, how it all worked out, right? Started in HR. I liked it. 
I saw an opportunity compliance. I enjoy it. But if you had asked me in 1996, you know, in 22 years, you'll be the chief compliance officer. And I'd be like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, and that's kind of, you know, life has a funny way of doing that to you, right? People tend to be like doctor, accountant, lawyer, so on and so forth. As long as you're enjoying what you're doing, which I have over the years, continue on that path. But who knows? I mean, down the road, if the role changes, or I shouldn't say the role, but if, if the industry changes and I'm required to do something else, I'll do it. But, well, let me ask you, do you see anything in the sports world these days that ties over to compliance? Yes, NCAA regulation. So having the need for compliance officers, especially the NCAA, seems to be so convoluted with their rules. And you know, there's more pressure to pay athletes for what they're doing, especially the coaches in the schools make a killing off of you know what, what the vendors provide. The need to have more compliance internally at a university because of the fact that there are so many more demands, especially you see all the stuff that's come out with the University of Louisville and all these other schools that are facing such heavy sanctions because of things that certain people shouldn't have been doing, there's a, a greater demand for it. Yeah. All right. So maybe there's something there. You there you go. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> there's something there. Right. Well, listen, this has been awesome. I mean, you provided so much insight on compliance, on careers, on networking, relationships. One thing from an advice standpoint and a career standpoint do you have an opinion on mentors? That's a big topic these days, uh, especially with the millennials. And uh, I don't know if you ever had a mentor or if people approached you, but do you have a perspective on that? So one of my first bosses at Price Waterhouse, a guy named Kevin Norris, who, who is an absolutely fantastic human being, was really into you know, providing me advice and helping me along my path. He did that for everyone who worked for him. The 24-year-old Nick just didn't have an appreciation for it. The guy now would kill to have him back in his life. And I still talk to Kevin, but not to the extent that we used to. It's so important. The problem, I think, Adam, is that you don't value it early on because you're young and you're inexperienced and you know, you're naive. As you progress along, how great is it to have someone outside of your work environment that you can, or even inside your work environment, bounce ideas off of and get a fresh perspective. Because a lot of times, we've talked about this a lot, you view the forest through the trees, you don't get to see the whole picture. And we tend to get too focused on what's in front of us as opposed to everything that's around us. And having that person, you know, I, I don't care you know, how far along in your career, you can never be too old or too experienced to have a mentor because there's always someone that has more experience and can provide you with great advice. Amen. That's a, that's a reason that a lot of these business coaches are doing so well. It's a really big business. A lot of executives. So, so I used to have a business coaching, a lot of senior executives uh, with some major companies. I'm not going to name names, right. but it's almost mandatory that you have a business coach. And they pay thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, I was getting paid ten to $20,000 per client and not spending. I, I spent a lot more time than I even contractually had to. Right. But it just shows how important and how much value some of these organizations believe in that it's essentially a paid mentor but it's the value is tremendous absolutely talk to me about who uh is the most impressive person that you know that you could pick up the phone and call right now and who is that person and what makes them so impressive so i'm gonna be a little corny here and i'm gonna say my wife and the reason why i say that is because my wife was raised by a single parent at the age of nine um it was just her dad and her brother and she worked hard. She put herself through college at Emory. 
She put herself through law school at Washington and Lee. She moved from Florida to New York, didn't know many people, took a job at a law firm, and she's built a very good career over the years, you know, and she's done all on her own, right? She hasn't had much help along the way. She's a very strong person, but she's very loving and very caring. She is the best mother that I could possibly ever ask for my children. She is an amazing partner and my best friend. Someone to me that I have been so important to have in my life because of all the attributes that she brings and how, you know, just really she's just the whole package. I mean, she, for it's just so important to have her. And I was so fortunate to meet her when I did. And, you know, she's just been someone that, you know, I, I really cherish in terms of spending my life with. Wow. That's a hell of an endorsement. And Jill, you're a lucky woman. <laughs> I'm a lucky guy. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> that's great. Do you have any questions for me? I'm sorry. I've been dominating this conversation. If there's anything that you have for me, I'm happy to, uh, to answer the best of my ability. Well, well, let me throw back the question to you that you had asked me earlier. What attribute do you think is most important that you see with people who you're working with? Because, you know, I mentioned resiliency. I don't know if there's something else that I may not have mentioned, but in your experience, because you're a lot more well-versed in this than I am, what do you see? in terms of having that important attribute and what makes people successful? That's a loaded question, and that's a great question. I'm really impressed that you were able to answer it the way you did on the spot. It's funny because as I'd asked that to you, I was thinking about it myself, and wow, it's really hard to nail one thing. I guess if I was uh, put into a corner and I had to come back to you, I guess I'd first start with, unless you have one really dynamic skill set that, that you're able to master, I think you need to really have an ability to be flexible and reinvent yourself, especially with what's going on today. There, you know, with technology, you know, AI. You've got businesses, significant amount of businesses that are shrinking. You've got the way the world is is changing so much. You don't go into the days of uh, working for one company and retiring. I'm, I'm a little outdated. I got this statistic back in 2011 or 12, but uh, my my parents' generation, my my parents are uh, late late 60s during their generation the average job was less than two less than two it was like 1.7 and then if you think about that my dad had his own business and my mother worked for one company since she got out of uh, until she retired well, let's go to, to, to our generation and they say the average person's going to have let's call it seven to nine jobs before they retire right so now the kids that are born and this again is 2011 2012 they're saying the average amount of jobs that they're going to have is between 17 and 19, wow. and that's uh, before they retire, if they're able to retire. So things are changing. Now we've also have healthcare that's changing, that nowadays it, it'll eventually move to more where you don't necessarily have to have the big company. So you need to be nimble, you need to be flexible, uh, which also leads me to you know one of the reasons why I really started networking-wise, because the relationships are so important. I, I can't stress it enough. Back to the, the days of when I owned the recruiting firm, I would always ask people, what would they do differently? And outside of not being in the field that they were in, and that was usually more of like kind of like a joke, but the people that were real hitters almost unanimously would tell me that they would have either built a bigger network, they would have nurtured their network, or, or just something came down to 
networking. Sorry that I couldn't give a really short, succinct answer like you did. That's great. But uh, but that was that's a that's an excellent question, Nick. It and, really is. And, and to add to your point, right? I think our generation um, in that Gen X category is really going to have a shift in terms of redefining what retirement means. I don't point. think that you and I and people that are around our age are ever truly going to be retired. There's a financial advisor, and I can't remember his name, but he has a book, and he basically said something to the effect of, with life expectancy going longer and longer, and people focus more on their health, the traditional, hey, I'm going to retire at 65, collect my Social Security, and live off my savings, for 25 years, assuming you live to 90, that's not viable, right? You're going to have to continue on in some sort of capacity and where you're going to have to provide income because the nest eggs go quick. There are situations in the marketplace where if the market goes south, it can wipe out a lot of what you saved. So I think what you're going to see are not being truly retired in the sense of way that our parents went, but more along the lines of being more in a part-time capacity, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, if, if you, know, you can do it both physically and mentally. I would agree. I agree. Well thought out. I think that's great insight. Nick, you've been awesome. You've articulated really well your your thoughts, your ideas. There's been a ton of information, things that people can learn from you, and I hope they really just enjoyed our conversation. So that's thanks, for, thanks for having me. Well, thank you. This has been great. I'd love to do it again. Awesome. And maybe that we will. <laughs> okay. Nick Passarelli, take two. <laughs> great. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If so, check out some of my others on conversationswithconnors.com. If you're someone looking to build a business, increase your sales, or make a career change, go to networkwise.com. There, you'll have access to a bunch of resources that can help you get started. Thanks again, make it a great day, and remember to always networkwise.